Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? Welcome to another edition of the Fundamental Health Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I have been traveling the last couple weeks. I have got a lot of cool stuff coming up. I'm going to Africa in February, but the last couple of weeks I've been in the mountains. I was in Montana. Last week I've been in Utah doing some snowboarding. And one of the cool things about being in Utah was that I got to meet a bunch of amazing people at a mastermind. But what was so cool was that almost everybody at the mastermind was interested in the carnivore diet. I was there to learn from these guys about business stuff and how to really tell the story in the best way and a little bit of writing, coaching from people. And everybody at this mastermind was fascinated by the carnivore diet. And we had so many cool discussions about meat and organs and nose to tail and the value of these things in our lives. So that was really inspirational for me. If you need more organs in your life, check us out at heartandsoil.co. One of the things that I believe so firmly more than anything, is that we all have an ancestral birthright to freaking radical health. And I use that word radical a lot. It's kind of a joke, but I love the 80s. But I really believe that you and your mom and your grandma and your kids and your brothers and your sisters and your mamas and your papas have an ancestral birthright to live freaking radically. And I cannot tell you how many people tell me, tell me, I can't tell you how many people tell me (laughs) that when they add organs like liver and heart and kidney and pancreas and spleen to their diet, they're leveled up. They get so much, they feel so much better. And this is because there are unique nutrients in these things that aren't found in muscle meat and they really definitely aren't found in plants. So check us out at heartandsoil.co. We make desiccated organ supplements made from grass-fed, grass-finished animals, resourcefully, resourcefully, respectfully raised in New Zealand on regenerative farms. I am loving Lifeblood these days, Lifeblood has blood in it and liver and spleen. Spleen is like my favorite sleeper organ. So Lifeblood, Heart of the Warrior is one of my favorites. And we've got beef organs back in stock, you guys. You've heard me talk about this as well, but in flu and cold season, like right now, you got to think about Immunomilk, our grass-fed, grass-finished colostrum, which has been shown to be as effective, if not more effective than a flu vaccination Colostrum is incredibly valuable. I've talked about it on many podcasts. I talk about it with Mary in this podcast a little bit. But check out our colostrum if you need immune support right now. Check out gut and digestion if you have gut issues. And if you just want to be like Carnivore MD and kick a whole bunch of ass, get Lifeblood, Heart of the Warrior, and Beef Organs. Love you all. Check us out, heartandsoil.co. My guest this week is Mary Ruddick. She is amazing. I'm actually going to Africa with Mary and a bunch of other people in February. Part of the trip is with Eric Ed Meads, who I had on the podcast previously. And part of the trip is with Mary and Brian Sanders and a bunch of other people. We're going to get a lot of video, hopefully do a bunch of hunting with the Hadza. But in this podcast, Mary tells her story. She had a crazy autoimmune disease, which really defies diagnosis within Western medicine that was so severe that she was bedridden for four years. And the total autoimmune illness gave her symptoms for probably more than eight What was the improvement when she went to an animal-based type diet 
and she cut out mostly all of the vegetables and ended up eating meat and very simple foods. How cool is that? Diet is so powerful. This podcast and last week's podcast with Sean O'Mara, I think are really strong testaments to the notion that diet is incredibly powerful for human health. And I strongly believe that autoimmunity is very fixable if we can understand what the body needs. And that's why I'm so excited about an, uh, uh, an animal-based diet. The simplest, most nutritious diet that a human can eat without any of the things, with, with the fewest amount at least, of things that will trigger the immune system. That's what it's all about. Animal meat, animal organs, fresh or desiccated like we make it hard in soil, and the least toxic plant foods, which I've talked about in the past. So this podcast is amazing with Mary. Then we go on to talk about her travels throughout Africa and other countries, her experiences with them, her actual firsthand knowledge of indigenous diets, of hunter-gatherers, the kind of stuff I'm gonna see firsthand when I'm in Africa next month. But Mary shares her stories and some of it's amazing. I will mention that toward the end of the podcast, we talk a little bit about the Shona people and the fact that they eat kale. And this really threw me off during the podcast. And what I realized and I, I, when I did the research on this is that kale is not, kale doesn't grow in Africa as far as I can tell. It was imported, and I think the people that Mary is talking about who eat kale as a Shona are getting imported kale or are acculturated a little bit to Western culture. I do not think that the Shona people eat kale in the African bush. There really are no leafy greens that I'm aware of eaten by any indigenous tribes in the African bush for anything other than uh, medicinal purposes, not for food purposes. So that's a, that's a caveat for the podcast. That's a modification or a clarification that I want to say. But I think that, that at that point in the podcast, there's a little bit of confusion about whether we're talking about a, uh, a slightly more westernized, quote, modernized group of the Shona versus the ones who are actually in the bush because they do not eat kale from what I can tell. Anyway, enjoy the podcast with Mary Ruddock, you guys. This is an awesome one. I also want to say thank you to my sponsors for this week, got some amazing ones. You guys all know how much I value sleep. It is critical for everything. It is absolutely the best recovery tool, the best uh, performance-enhancing drug there is, and I cannot sleep well if I don't have a good mattress. And for the longest time, I hated that my mattress was too saggy, and then I found Helix, and I'm stoked that they're sponsoring the podcast because you can go to their website like I did, take their quiz, and I'm a mainly a stomach sleeper, occasionally side sleeper, but you can take their quiz and they will recommend a mattress for you based on how you sleep, which is amazing. They customize it to you. They recommended the Dawn for me. I got the Dawn Lux, and it's absolutely the best mattress I've ever had. It is amazing, um, and it's really improved my sleep quality, so you should check them out at Helix. The quiz literally takes two minutes, matches your body type and sleep preferences to find you the perfect mattress um, you're unique. You should have a mattress that's really built for you. Um, it's really a cool thing, and I've been very impressed with what they've done, which is not surprising because they were awarded the number one best overall mattress pick in 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. So you can go to helixsleep.com slash carnivoremd, take the two-minute quiz, they'll match you with your customized mattress, and you will have the best sleep of your life or your money back 10-year warranty, try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you're gonna love it because it's customized for you and they make really good stuff. You can get $200 off. So Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattresses and two free pillows for our listeners are the Fundamental Health Podcast, because you guys are radical, at Helix Sleep. 
helixsleep.com slash carnivoremd. That is helixsleep.com slash carnivoremd. Helix is H-E-L-I-X. You knew that. You also knew that I love the folks at White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. They are making amazing grass-fed, grass-finished meat and organs and lamb and beef and ducks and guineas. Anyway, all kinds of good stuff. They have chickens that are corn and soy-fed. They are incredible people. They are sixth-generation regeneratively raised uh, Regenerally raising their farm. Will Harris, Jenny Harris are amazing people. This is really some of the best meat I have ever tried in my whole life. And you can get it online. People always ask me, where do I get liver from, Paul? Where do I get liver? And you get liver and organs from White Oak Pastures. So if you want fresh organs, go to whiteoakpastures.com. Use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your order. Also, if you want the best stew meat, the best tenderloin tips, the best ribeye you will ever eat, go to whiteoakpastures.com. Regenerative agriculture is how we move the needle. It is everything for me. It's what we do at Heart and Soil. If you want desiccated organs, check us out at Heart and Soil. But if you want fresh organs, check out White Oak Pastures. Another farm I love is Belcampo. I am so glad to support these two farms. Belcampo is in Northern California in the shadow of the beautiful Mount Shasta. They are also doing grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised meat and organs. They even have suet, carnivore bundles for listeners of this podcast. They have certified organic meat and they are amazing. Uh, on one of the other previous podcasts, I mentioned that my favorite was the Bavette steak and I just have to spill the beans. I freaking love the Bavette steaks from Belcampo. They're amazing. They also have incredible roasts, tenderloins, ribeyes, New York steaks. It's just so good. I'm getting hungry thinking about it. Uh, check them out at bellcampo.com. Use the code CARNIVOREMD for 20% off your order, 20% off your order, or Carnivore 10 if they are running another special. You'll get up to 30% off at Belcampo. This is the way we get this amazing meat into everyone's hands. And as I've said before, regenerative agriculture is the movement that will change the world for the better. I believe it deeply. And while I was at this mastermind in Utah, there was a lot of partying. And I, didn't, I don't do a lot of partying, but I love hanging out with people and meeting people. So I was definitely up past my bedtime or around blue lights at night. And I was really stoked to have my Blue Blocks glasses around. Blue Blocks has been an amazing sponsor of this podcast, blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. And I have the Jaspers with clear lenses. So I didn't look like Elton John at the party, but I could protect my eyes from the blue wavelengths in the lights, which can disrupt disrupt the circadian rhythms and my sleep and I love them. I really appreciate what they do. They make these very high quality glasses. They are deeply researched into what they can do in the lenses to block the green uh, and blue wavelengths, which disrupt these circadian rhythms. They also make an amazing red light device called the Hive, a sleep mask, uh, which is really cool looking, and bulbs that you can put in your house that are yellow and red. Check them out at blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Carnivore MD is the code there. Onto the podcast, leave me a review on Apple Podcasts if you like this one. And every month I am giving away a signed copy of my book to one person, one lucky individual, to who I am deeply grateful, who leaves me a review on Apple Podcasts. Onto the podcast, listen after for what is going on with me, you guys. Love you all. All right, Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. As you guys can tell, Mary is super excited right now. She's so happy because before the podcast started, we were talking about the fact that she just put in an offer on a penthouse in Greece overlooking the Acropolis. And before you guys think, oh, she's she must, you know, be some rich trust person, trust fund person. It's it's quite the opposite. Mary's had this crazy, amazing journey 
to arrive in Greece. And apparently property is very affordable in Greece. And, and you know, the, the last thing that we were saying before we turned on the recorder was you've had this journey and you've sort of just ended up in Greece and none of this was expected. So I'm excited to share this journey with our listeners. And a lot of it has involved a lot of indigenous folks in Africa and tribes there and your health journey and all this kind of stuff. So we are going to be taken on Mary's wild ride today and, and eventually understand how she ended up in Greece, in Athens, right? That's right. With potentially, you know, it sounds like a penthouse apartment overlooking the Acropolis. <laughs> Dreams do come true, I guess. That's amazing. It's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so. Yes. So, yeah. I, yeah. As we were discussing what we were going to talk about in this podcast, I asked you for stories of your crazy experiences along this journey. And I want to start with some of these and then we can kind of backtrack and fill in all the story behind it. But when I asked you for stories of crazy experiences, you said, well, it's hard to choose. I was charged by rhinos. I ate raw adrenal gland and saw the liver infested with parasites, or I was hunted by a lion. And I thought, oh, okay, so why don't you start? I'll give you the pick. Uh, why don't you start with one of those stories and then we'll circle back around to maybe the beginning of it all. Uh, we'll start with the hippos because I think that was one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. So okay. I was in Zimbabwe. Hippos. Best experience. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I was in Zimbabwe on this reserve uh, at night. So there's this tradition in Zimbabwe and I think through a lot of Africa to go for sundowners, which is where you hike to a beautiful spot and you watch the sunset with your friends basically is what you do. And it's done on a nightly basis. It's a really lovely tradition. Well, we were in the, in the jungles of Zimbabwe and night fell and we were up on this little mountain. And uh, normally I would not be in a mountainous, jungleous, uh, jungle type region on my own in the dark in Africa where, you know, there are boa constrictors and hippos, <laughs> lions, all sorts of things, right? But we had a guide and he seemed very confident. So we went up there, the sunset, we stayed a little bit too long and we were hiking back to our Jeep and we were maybe three in line. So there was maybe about 10 of us and a couple of our friends were still back up on the mountain and some of us were down at the car and I was right in the middle. And suddenly our guide, uh, Tremble, he, he goes, run. Very sternly, very calmly. <laughs> <laughs> and so we actually did the opposite, of course. We were like... <laughs> stopped moving. And he said, no, okay, stop. And then we looked off into the distance and you, you really can't see anything because again, it's a jungle, it's night, there's not a full moon, you can't see much. But we start to see these two shadows of things just tumbling towards us, really charging. And it was, uh, it was these rhinos at full speed charging towards us, <laughs> full speed. Apparently we were in their territory and they were coming home to rest for the night. And usually rhinos they're not like hippos they're not uh typically aggressive i mean of course they can be you see the videos of them toppling cars and these kind of things but it's not their natural nature and uh but if you're in their in their kind of area at nightfall that's a totally different situation and this is a mother and her baby the hilarious part about it once they stopped running and the guide uh the guide sent a, a warning shot up into the sky to get them to stop running but they they stopped very close to us <laughs> And then we were able to get to the car. Our hearts were racing a million miles a minute. But it was also at the same time as it was thrilling and so exciting and terrifying. It was adorable because this baby rhino 
had the full intention of the mother rhino of being tough, you know? (laughs) So it was just all in all a wonderful experience. And even from then, from the time we got back into the Jeep, it took another maybe half an hour before our friends could come down because it really wasn't, it's not very safe to be around them. But that was probably the most exciting, followed by the lion hunt, which I was the one hunted, by the way, we were not hunting lions, (laughs) but (laughs) but that that all happened on the same day, which was the most amazing thing. Yeah, I remember thinking, I I mean, hopefully my parents don't listen to this podcast, like they're (laughs) never... going to let me leave the country again. But but yet earlier that day, while the sun was still high, we knew there was a a really aggressive lion in this area. And he was known for kind of, as far as uh, lions go, he would be like the serial killer of lions or maybe Scar. If you think of Scar from The Lion King, he killed his wife. He (laughs) had killed many animals in very strange ways, not the typical lion. Let's just put it that way. So he's he's more of the, the serial killer lion. And he was in the area and we knew about him and we actually spotted him and he looked like he was going off to kind of take this snooze, this nap, uh, but he had a real mean look to him. And so we kept going and we kind of kept an eye on, on him. And then we, you know, he kind of left our, our peripheral vision and we kind of forgot for a little bit. It turns out he wasn't snoozing at all. He was just giving us a ruse. So he was pretending to snooze. <laughs> Meanwhile, while we got distracted, he did this loop around us and came barreling at us through through the jungle straight for us. He lurched right at me and hit something that stopped him. And for me, I have to tell you, it was the most thrilling moment of my entire life. I felt so alive after that moment. And it had me rethink the entire flight or, fight or flight concept that everyone talks about because for the entire rest of the day, I genuinely never felt better in my entire life. I was on cloud nine. I had so much energy, so much clarity. I was pumped full of all, I'm sure, of the hormones. But instead of being in that like fight or flight where you're, you know, uh, just worn out, exhausted, terrible, all the bad things, poor circulation, I felt like a million bucks. So if they could bottle that, someone would be very, very wealthy. We just need to create some sort of a, a theme park where lions can charge at people and then stop magically. <laughs> right. We could charge. I mean, I know we all like to wake up to a cold shower and that's what most of us are doing these days, but this is, I think, another alternative. So what, why did the lion stop? It charged you and just froze or what happened? Yeah. Yeah. It just, it completely froze after that. And then the guides, most of these animals know the guides. And so if the guide, because the guides are there enough of the time. And so once they see the guides, the guides know what to do, whether it's like a warning shot or what's with the different animals. Uh, so so usually once that happens, then you're in, you're in good standing. That's not the case for all the parks though. That just happened to be the one where I was or the area that I was in. Wow. That is quite a day in Zimbabwe. (laughs) That's an incredible (laughs) day. Things you don't want to hear from your guide in the jungle at night. Run, (laughs) run. Run. What? And of course everybody freezes. Oh my gosh. So I just finished reading this book, The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life. Um, and it's by a guy named Boyd Verti. And he lives in South Africa. And he is a guy who apparently did does life coaching and went back to this park in South Africa called Londolozi. 
and was tracking lions there. And in the book, they were talking about how if you're charged by a lion, you're supposed to just stand your ground. Yes. And definitely it had me thinking, hmm, if I were charged by a lion, would I, have, <laughs> would I have the cojones to just stand my ground like Mary? I hope so. Maybe we'll find out when we go to Africa in February. But I'm sure we will. Yeah. <laughs> really? We're going to be charged by lions. I wouldn't be surprised. You should hear the stories of some of our friends from down there. I heard, I mean, if these stories got out to the rest of the world, they would be made into movies and books. And this this is just a day in the life for these folks. Um, but especially Dave Glenn, he he runs the, he opened the, the um, lodge at Victoria Falls, but he has had the most fascinating life and he's been charged by tons of lions, but honestly, all of these people have, and their stories are incredible. They'll just keep going. Like maybe they'll know that they're getting hunted, uh, but they're, you know, they're having a great time with their friends and they'll keep walking through the, the thicket. They're very confident. <laughs> what a different life, right? What a different life. And here we are, or at least here I am in Austin, Texas, worried about traffic <laughs> or worried about a comment made by a troll on Instagram, right? This, <laughs> this is one of the reasons I'm excited to get back into the wilderness yes. and, and, and realign with these things. And one of the reasons I like looking at the stars just to re-clarify perspective and think, why do I care? None of these things matter. Yes. Getting charged by a lion, that kind of matters. Getting charged by a rhino, that kind of matters. <laughs> Traffic <laughs> yes. in Austin, trolls on Instagram, don't really matter. Not a big deal. They don't actually big, matter. And the nice thing about Africa is that everything about it, no matter where you are, I mean, it's such a huge, huge span of land. So, of course, there's tons of diversity within that. But in general, everywhere you go, there's rolling blackouts with energy. The internet goes in and out. So you're constantly grounded and at one with, you know, what time of day is it? Where's the sun? And where can you get your resources? And where's your food coming from? And these kind of things. It's much more grounding. And in the Western world, we live in these square houses with straight lines and are really <laughs> quite intent at insulating ourselves very strongly from the natural world. If, yes. if, for instance, the power went out here and we were forced to sleep in a sleeping bag or be cold or didn't have lights or any of these things that, that remove this invisible, this sort of visible, invisible barrier between us and the natural world, we have this, we have this almost a fight or flight response like that. We have this scared response. We have this fear response that happens because we're so separated from it. So yeah, Completely. what a different world. And I'll tell you something, especially with your medical background that I found fascinating, at least in Zimbabwe. I don't know if this is the case elsewhere, but in Zimbabwe, the people have been through so much, all of them, from revolutions to political overthrows to economic real crashes where, I mean, they, I have a 10,000, a 10 hundred trillion dollar note from when their economy crashed. I mean, they're like, everyone lost everything. Uh, and that wasn't that long ago. So they've been through all of these things. And one of the, the most fascinating things I found was that uh, you just don't see people that are depressed. You know, it's like, I think I was just looking at a statistic in the state, 60% uh, of women of like fertile ages are depressed. And you just don't see that in the male or females in these, uh, in this kind of life or death kind of situation. And they're also more confident. I think when we go through those kind of trials, you find your own confidence and your kind of own empowerment to where all the houses I went to, they were all very self-sustaining. So whether you were out in a village, they had their chickens, they had like all of their food growing. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of it was meats, right? Because Zimbabwe is a high meat culture. 
And then in the towns, all of the houses are individually sustainable as well. They all have their own water. So they there's no public water there at all. And so they all have their own wells and water systems. They all have their own backup power. Usually it's solar. That's a really big thing there. Or you just go without. And everyone's used to that. Like you can't bake a cake there and count on it getting finished because the, the power can get off at any time. So it changes the way you bake. You, you really go more towards cooking, right? Like one pot meals, things like that, simple meals, lots of grilling, lots of steak, that kind of thing, because that's dependable. Uh, and uh, and yeah, so they're, they're very self-sustaining and they usually have their own goods and wares. And it, it also makes things a bit more simple and minimalistic because you just don't need as much. You don't want as much either. Uh, things are more of a burden. And I think that leads to happiness eventually. I do too. Uh, some of the happiest times in my life were the simplest times when I was through hiking the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada, three and a half months, just walk, eat, stay warm and dry every day. That's all we had to do. It was so joyous. And I really think we've gotten away from that, but that's all an aside. The other thing I'll say, and then I, I think maybe you can tell us your story leading up to how Mary gets to be in Zimbabwe, getting charged by lions and rhinos in the same day, is one of my favorite books is Tom Brown Jr.'s The Tracker. And in The Tracker, this is a man who grew up in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. And he tells the story of being apprenticed to this Apache Indian uh, man and being friends with this, this Apache Indian man's grandson and learning the ways of the Native Americans in our contemporary society, presumably in the 1950s and 1960s. And there's, he describes one day where the man who he calls grandfather, um, it was very hot out. And I imagine in New Jersey, like Virginia, where I grew up, it can get very humid and hot in the summer. And, and they, they're asking this man, they're asking this Apache Indian elder who they call grandfather, um, how, how do you deal with this heat? You know, he's just happily walking through the heat. They're dying. It's humid and hot. And if anyone hasn't experienced heat and humidity together, it's a very special beast. And, and he says, it's real. It's, it's real. It, it's not bothering me because it's real. And I've, I, that line has gotten stuck in my mind so many times that, that to me, it seems there's a real difference between being in the natural world, in which case things feel real, being in nature, being closer to the wilderness, and being in our sort of industrialized society where things don't feel so real. Getting charged by a lion or a rhino, looking at the stars, looking at the pattern of branches on the sky, even a warm day in nature is real. It's a real experience for a human. And yet we get caught up in these sort of mental games, or at least I do among social media and stuff. So that's a real interesting thing that I'm reminded of as you're telling that story. But let's go back to the beginning, Mary, because you've had this wild ride. And, <laughs> and I know true. it began with some of your own health issues, but why don't just start from wherever you think is a good place to begin and, and kind of tell us how you ended up going on this, this multi-year journey through many of these countries and we'll go from there. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, I, I want to say first, you know, I, I agree with you. The Pacific Crest Trail was one that I always had. That was my goal before I got sick. And we'll go into that as my graduation present to myself was to hike that from beginning to end. I was a really big backpacker growing up and went on lots of solo trips along with lots of trips with my brother and friend. And one of the happiest times for me, I, I would say two. One was hiking the Appalachian. I did uh, most of that, not all, That's but amazing. most of the Appalachian. And then 
then, uh, which is much easier than the Pacific Crest. So kudos to you. And then <laughs> the other time was when I was bed bound. Ironically, in both times I had nothing. And I think that really speaks for uh, uh, like true contentment and satisfaction uh, that sometimes when you have the least amount of things, it's actually when you're the most happy, uh, for, joyous, I would even say. So how did I get there to where I had nothing? So I, <laughs> I always had a traveling spirit. I would say my dad traveled a lot for work and he spoke lots of languages and he had grown up in uh, partly in Egypt. And that was always really fascinating to me. And so I had this desire to kind of travel the globe like he did. And when I graduated high school, I found this program in the Bahamas, which was on a remote island. That sounds glamorous. It was not like tourism for you listening. <laughs> we were camping. <laughs> there was one car on the island and uh, and it, it was really quite, quite rough, although it didn't feel like it at the time because I was basically a kid. It was really fun. And uh, at some point while we were studying the marine ecology there and marine bi biology there, uh, we a lot of us got this microbe in us that made us very ill. Myself, I had a really high fever that damaged part of my brain in the hypothalamus. And so I went from really quite perfect health and healthy upbringing to suddenly very, very sick with a condition that we later found out was called dysautonomia. Now, dysautonomia is a dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system. And you can have a very light case or you can have a very severe case. And I had a very severe case mm. where it caused lots of organ damage, neuropathy, uh, all sorts of things. And as those things do, it tended to get worse with time. So coming from Ohio in the Midwest and coming from a scientific uh, family, we we went to all the doctors and all those kinds of things. And really, uh, although some were very helpful and some, gosh, I really admire, uh, really, I just got worse over the time. And so around, around year seven, I actually became bedbound and my parents had to take full care of me. And I was not the personality for that at all. <laughs> they really bared with me quite well, which was really nice. I've never been a homebody. So that was that first year of being mostly in bed was very much a struggle and the opposite of what we were just talking about. It was really a dark time, which ended up being a huge blessing for me. I think sometimes being forced to stop and be present is a necessity uh, in grounding and maturity and all those kinds of things. And I definitely needed a bit of humbling. So that was quite good. Anyway, we looked at the situation at year seven. My, my illness went for 12 years. And at the time, my kidney disease was much worse. My liver, my lungs were much worse, all sorts of things. My neuropathy was really, really quite severe. And so we, we realized just doing the medical route and being on the medications wasn't working. You know, I was on 17 medications and all those things. And so for the first time, and I, I don't know why we didn't look before, maybe because YouTube and all this wasn't out yet, we, we started doing our own research. So my mom went and got some books. My dad started researching online. And we found that a lot of the finds that things that we were finding were written by doctors themselves when they themselves got ill and that they didn't do the normal standard care, uh, at least in these cases. So we just started trying, you know, at the time they didn't have any books written on any of the conditions that I had. And so we just did all sorts of things from heart disease diets to cancer diets and uh, tried to take more of a scientific uh, approach to it, meaning that we would do little N1. So I would give 
something a solid three or six months, depending on what system it was trying to work at before I judged if it was working or if I liked it or if I felt good or any of those kind of things. And in that process, it, it gave me a lot of purpose and was a lot of fun. And so that second year, I would say of being bed bound out of four was kind of the best of my entire life. I actually had a really wonderful time. I got into meditation and I was just, I felt in a deep state of gratitude a majority of the time, got really close with my parents, um, really let go of some of those mental ties that we have of, uh, you know, expectations out of life and, uh, and all of those things, because I don't know about you, but a lot of, a lot of times I think when you get sick at any age, you get so upset about the things that you're missing out on. And I was, I was very much in that camp. And so getting to that point where it was just kind of like letting go of that was amazing, <laughs> amazing, uh, very freeing and very good and continues to be to this day. So anyway, after three, four years of experimenting, uh, finally stumbled upon uh, a Russian diet called the GAPS diet. And I did a strict, almost carnivore version. It was about 95% carnivore, very ketogenic. And that along with uh, about a three hour lifestyle routine, cold therapy, meditation, all sorts of things, uh, limbic therapy, ended up in remission uh, by the end of the year. And it was truly remarkable. <laughs> it was really amazing. Uh, everything reversed from my thyroid disease, kidney, liver, literally everything, neuropathy. And uh, and so I went back to school and finished my undergrad and then immediately went back to school for nutrition. Honestly, thinking at the time I would do it just for my my own uh, desire to know more. I, was, I, I think like so many of us, I just could not get enough. I was constantly reading and researching and digging and I wanted an outlet for it. So I didn't think it would actually be a career. But when I graduated, I opened up a practice, uh, again, thinking like it would be a hobby side project. And then I was full time and on a wait list and ever since have been. So it's been really lucky. Uh, and that went on for a long time in Eugene, Oregon, mostly and in Portland. And I in the beginning of my career, I'd say I focused mostly on uh, nervous system conditions like I had uh, lots of autoimmunity and then mental health issues primarily. So I worked at a, a mental health uh, institute and was the director of nutrition there for many, many years, which was very satisfying. And as my career kind of progressed, I got lots of opportunities to travel with work from going to conferences and speaking engagements. And I loved it. I kind of remembered, I don't know if other people go through this too, but when you go through that kind of death of your old self, when you've been so ill, you, you really do let go of a lot of your old personality in, I think, a healthy way. But it was nice because the longer I was better, I kind of reclaimed some of that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I love this. I love packing a suitcase and <laughs> going somewhere new and the smell of an airplane and all those kinds of things. And so uh, as I started doing that, I sat down one night and I just kind of decided to redesign my life. I was like, OK, if I could have anything I ever wanted, what would it be? And uh, my answer was to continue my private practice because I, I love it. I live for it and to travel full time and go see the world and see all the places that I had only read about. One of the biggest things I wanted to do was to go see many of these tribes that I had read about because those were so transformative for my own health journey. One thing I didn't mention earlier was that like so many people, I was uh, vegetarian and vegan through most of my illness. Mm. And, uh, and it was in finding Weston A. Price's work and specifically his, his chapter on the Maasai that got me to completely change my diet. And, uh, and that opened up my world. And 
got me so fascinated with traditional and ancestral diets that just, you know, that was like the tip of the iceberg of what I tapped into. And so I wanted to go around and start studying and meeting these, these cultures and these tribes around the world and see what was really true. Like was what I read actually true and that kind of thing. And so that's what I've been doing for the last several years. I've until coronavirus been in a new country mostly every week and <laughs> And still doing my full-time uh, my full-time practice. And so during the morning or afternoon, I'll go and, and learn as much as I can and on the weekends and then research and that kind of thing, film what I can and then do my private practice. And so what happened this year was I had a 10-country tour of Africa planned out and I was going to see 23 different tribes that I had, I had set up. And then coronavirus hit in Zimbabwe. So I ended up spending six months there, which was... Fascinating. We'll have to talk about the diet there because it's really quite fascinating, some of the things they do. And uh, and then I got a window of time where I could jump over to Greece. And the Blue Zone Icaria is something I've been wanting to touch upon. And Greece is, for your audiences, has been my like home base for the last couple of years. So, uh, so it was a natural place to go. So I jumped on the plane, came up here, and went to Icaria for the summer. Amazing. So I just want to that's incredible. Thank you for sharing the story to that point, because do, do they know what organism you got when you were on this island that triggered the dysautonomia? What organism was it? They do. It was a form of mycoplasma and it was uh -huh. carried by chickens. So they think either some of the chicken uh, stool got into our water supply, which is very possible. Our water wasn't super clean or we were served some uncooked chicken, but it was a mycoplasma that was known to be carried by birds primarily. Interesting. So it was... Mm -hmm. An, an organism that had already, that infected humans that had an animal vector as well. And then you said it, was it a 12 year illness of which oh. four, 12 year illness with dysautonomia, hypothalamic dysfunction of which four years you were bed bound? Yeah, for the most part, I couldn't drive. So with with severe forms of dysautonomia, you get something called pot seizures and things like that. So you, there were several times before I knew what I had where I would black out at the wheel. And so I stopped driving for years. And then I got very weak and lost a ton of weight. Often you get malabsorption with this illness the longer it goes on. And so I, I dropped under 100 pounds and I'm 5'8". So I was very, very emaciated. And I lost the strength to do most things. So things like picking up, I remember not being able to lift a book or like like read a book in bed that was too difficult mom got all these devices for me so she could like bolster things up uh coffee mugs were too heavy that kind of thing so yeah it was four years uh, that were like that and then she would kind of get me into the car and we'd go for the infusions or appointments those kind of things and i love that you said the second year of the four that you were bed bound was the best year of your life that's really so was. That's so incredible that you were that able to find peace and a centered place amidst that. So that's yeah, it was a real gift. It was a real gift. And it, um, I really owe a lot of that to my mom. And I owe a lot of that to the pain of the neuropathy. Neuropathy is, is such an incredible pain that I, I could never put it into words of what it feels like. And luckily, nothing really works for it. No pain medication. Does, well, I say that now I would have killed for something to relieve it then. But the the benefit of, of being through something that that you can't get out of that you don't have an escape from, especially an immediate escape, is that it forces you to go through it. I think that's where a lot of the benefit 
benefit from all of this cold therapy comes from as well, or these really intensive challenges that people do. Um, when you don't have an out, it gets you, uh, your brain kind of breaks, I, and it kind of breaks open, and it allows you to get to this other level that I, I know you can get to without going through something terrible <laughs> as well. But it yeah, it was a gift. And that was mostly from the neuropathy, I think. Wow. And because I know people are really going to be interested in this, and because I see this condition, this autonomia and things like it very frequently, I, I would love for you just to give us a little more detail about what your diet was like on GAPS. It's not something I've discussed a lot in the show. And then maybe just a little bit more about the other therapies you did so that people know exactly the sort of the, the regimen that you ended up engaging in that was so transformative for you. The thing I'll just mention before you dive into this is that this syndrome or this series of reactions where humans are exposed to some organism and there's a resulting autoimmunity is quite common. I've seen it in people with gut stuff. And so this is a very interesting model to look at that sometimes these organisms do appear to trigger of all varieties, whether it's mycoplasma or a GI parasite or plasmodium or whatever. Um, they, they trigger some sort of autoimmune condition in the human body. And it's very fascinating. This is actually the reason I got interested in a carnivore diet originally was this, this, this syndrome of autoimmunity triggered by many things, but how we fix it and how we reverse it. And how interesting that you were vegan and vegetarian. And then you went to mostly animal-based gaps and had an improvement. So can you walk us through a little bit more detail, what your diet was like and what the other things you did, because I'm sure people will want to know this. So the lifestyle things I started four years before I went into remission, and I don't think I would have gotten through the gap diet had I not uh, had been kind of a veteran in those because they gave me the grace and the uh, ability to get through something really difficult, which that diet was, I would say, is one of the hardest things I've done. Uh, so that was really necessary. And they also brought, uh, those lifestyle things also brought a lot of joy to my life before I saw any improvement in my health. And I think it's really important for anybody out there struggling to find your joy despite the condition and not look for in the future, to find happiness in the future and in remission. Uh, so the lifestyle things were quite extensive with dysautonomia. For those who aren't familiar with it, you, you're, everything is dysregulated that you normally wouldn't think about. So that would be your circadian rhythms, your hormones, your breathing. Uh, most people are on a CPAP or a breathing machine with severe cases. I was as well. Um, uh, your organ function, where your blood flows. So for instance, uh, in a healthy individual, when you start to digest food, you start to produce enzymes, especially like amylase will be produced and uh, blood will go into the digestive organs. And with someone with dysautonomia, the opposite happens. The blood goes out into the extremities, usually into the feet and legs, which is why you get a lot of neuropathic issues uh, from the blood pooling. And so the lifestyle things really were a way for me to start to communicate to my body, to, to try to regulate my system like I would with a child. I really thought of myself like an infant, like, okay, uh, out of desperation. I was like, okay, if I had a baby right now and it was having sleep issues, what would I do? I'd have a really set schedule for it, set eating schedule, waking schedule. So that's what I did for myself. Uh, I started waking up at the same time every day, which is, is really difficult with this condition because you often are reverse. You're often awake at night and then asleep during the day. And, uh, and the pain goes into that, right? Cause it's hard to sleep when you've got that much pain going, but also 
it's the shift of the hormones. So you produce cortisol and melatonin at the wrong times. And, uh, and so I just started not caring when I went to sleep. So if I went to sleep at five, I would still get up at 7am. And I just started getting up at seven regardless, even though I had nowhere to go. And I would start the day with light therapy first, which I think was really helpful. And then I would do a gratitude journal and then meditation. At the time, I couldn't start with meditation. I was too tired. And then I started with little exercises in the beginning when I was mostly bed bound, I would just do things like shoulder lifts. Uh, I couldn't do much more. And then I, I worked on it and built up every single week and day. I had a really tight schedule. I was super nerdy with it. So, uh, so I had these kind of like challenges I would do each week to get myself a little bit stronger. And, uh, and then at night I had a really extensive routine as well. In the morning would be cold therapy. At night, I would do a two-hour meditation and another gratitude journal. And one thing was really helpful. I wrote down everything I accomplished that day, which for someone who's sick and not working is a wonderful thing to do because it helps you to feel like, no, I'm not a sick person. A sick person can't get all of this done. And those things might be meditation, but it's still really great to see them all listed. Uh, so that was really helpful. So I had all those going. And during that time, I tried around 16 different diets. I wanted to say that we did until I found the GAPS diet, which is the one that ended up working. At the time, I hadn't heard of the carnivore or I would have done it. Uh, I now work with it a lot, <laughs> quite extensively. But uh, but I stumbled on the GAPS diet. And this is an old Russian diet that's uh, designed for the microbiome and for rebuilding the villi in the gut lining and for redistributing which bacteria live. Now, the carnivore diet, along with carnivore with honey as well, uh, and carnivore with dairy and carnivore with eggs, actually is part of the GAPS diet and always has been, but they would have called it the no fiber diet back mm -hmm. in the day. So, uh, so the GAPS diet has many, many different variations and a hundred people on it will be eating different foods, but there are certain things that are hard no's, uh, such as starches. You're not allowed to have starches and specific forms of long chain sugars, polysaccharides that can feed the bacterial overgrowth until you're better essentially. And what the version that I did, I didn't know I was doing a version. I was just following what, what uh, this wonderful woman was teaching me was just soup. So I would boil a whole chicken and then have that with enormous amounts of tallow and ghee and uh, a tiny amount, about half a cup a day of carrots and onions. And that was mainly the vehicle for the ghee and then the chicken and about six cups of broth a day, at least. So six cups is a minimum that you can have. And this is meat broth, not bone broth. Anyway, it worked remarkably well, uh, like remarkably well to where, although I felt much worse in the first four months, I, and I mean, really much worse, I had way more of the seizures and these kind of things. My legs were purple, which anybody who's had dysautonomia knows what that means. And, uh, and lots of these kind of things. But when I went to get my nerve function checked at Cleveland clinic, which I did each month, my neuromuscular doctor was blown away by the improvement. And so he really encouraged me to keep going. And I did. And by month four to six, I started to feel like myself again in a way I hadn't in 12 years. By the 12 month mark, I was in full remission off all medications and back at school. So really, if you think about it, it was pretty quick. I would say uh, a pretty quick recovery and a really, really just remarkable one because, I mean, this won't sound much to your audience because you guys are so good about eating just meat and things <laughs> well, for those that do. But uh, <laughs> but what I did, I just ate because that worked. I, I'm 
sure you guys have probably felt the same way. I was so excited to be feeling better and to get my life back that I just continued on that chicken soup diet. I didn't eat anything else for two years, um, despite being better. I didn't want to mess with it. And then really kept a, a gaps in ketogenic diet for, for many, many years after that. And I'm still ketogenic, although I don't have to be anymore, which is really lucky. It's so cool. Western medicine, despite the best intentions of many intelligent physicians, was unable to really offer you much. Yeah. And then a simple dietary change, which admittedly was very hard for you at the time, yeah. really had a profound influence on your physiology. I mean, that right there is the epitome of the things that get me super excited. And, and my intention, as I think is yours, is to to really change the perspective and change the change the landscape of Western medicine during our lifetime so that more physicians appreciate how powerful these, we might call them, you know, zero fiber diets, these animal-based diets, these low antigenic diets can be for people with autoimmune conditions. And how interesting that it took four months to six months to really start to see an improvement. That's a really valuable pearl for everyone listening that sometimes the horizon of these changes is a little longer than we would like, but if they give it time, often there is an improvement. So amazing. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. Oh yeah, my pleasure. My goal really, I, I think we probably have a very shared goal. My goal is really for patients to learn about this stuff in the beginning so that you can at least try it and see if it works for you instead of waiting a decade to find these kinds of things. Yeah, that's that's the idea. And that's what's so cool about platforms like this and why it's so yeah. important that people share this podcast if they like it, et cetera, because what we're suggesting is not a medication that made it's made by Pfizer with a lot of different side effects or potential bad outcomes for people. It's not a drug that costs $30,000 a month and is an experimental thing. It's not something that's only available to people who live uh, in, you know, in Zimbabwe or in Antarctica. It's, it's available to everyone. And it's a very viable intervention that can help and has helped now a lot of people. So let's continue on with your story. You, you, you got better really many would say miraculously. And I think yeah. that's so incredible. You got interested in nutrition, you went back to school, you had this practice, and then you started traveling. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about, I've, I've always thought it was pronounced Ikaria, but maybe I'm mispronouncing it. You're in Greece, so you can, I'm, I am mispronouncing it, I will presume. Uh -huh. And because so often when I talk to people about animal-based diets, they say, but what about the blue zones, right? Yes. And I've done a whole podcast with Tommy Wood debunking the notion. There's a whole chapter in my book about this, but you've seen it firsthand. Mm -hmm. So when you went to this place in Greece, <laughs> what did they eat? And then maybe I will, while you're talking about it, I'll pull up the study that you sent me about their diet and we can talk about it. So this is one of Dan Buettner's five, you know, paradigmatic blue zones or these sort of model blue zones. And in fact, maybe their diet isn't quite like people imagine it to be. Yes, it's not at all. In fact, so Greek is the Greek language is incredibly difficult for us Americans and English speakers to pronounce. I am still it's still a hurdle, but the the R's so the I's are pronounced as E's and the R's are pronounced as D's. Like oh we gosh. would say all better right. almost that sound. So it's Icardia. Yeah, so it's, it's I'm really useless. <laughs> but don't worry about it. Just pronounce it the way we should in English. That's fine. Um, so, so I knew from being in Greece so much over the last couple of years and having this as my base that the Greek diet was was um, heavily meat based and not plant based, and also very seasonal and very regional. And so, um, when I uh, many times, I'm sure you get this as well. When I put someone on a protocol 
for their condition. One week later, I'll get something back like, oh, my family's worried about me eating this, this many uh, animal products or, uh, <laughs> or uh, what about this blue zone theory? You know, what you're recommending is really polar opposite to that, that kind of thing. And so I wanted to to go and, and have video because I think although I learned most of my things from books and I'm, I'm more of a reader, I know most people today are getting things in through video. And so I was like, people need to see this for themselves. They need to see what I've seen. So when I went to Ikaria, it was fascinating because I thought maybe, especially going in the summer, there would be even more plants than I was expecting, but less than they had in the book. I definitely expected less than in the book, but it was, it was, even less than I imagined, <laughs> really. I mean, it was so heavily meat-based and dairy-based as well. And the meats were really different uh, than many parts of Greece. So it was much more pork and a lot of goat. I would say goat is the primary that they eat, but very nose to tail to the point that uh, each of the restaurants, their specialty was the organ meat, and that was kind of their pride, and that's what they were serving everyone. And it was so well cooked. I mean, they're real, real artisans with the meats and with the organ meats in in this country throughout. They don't use any vegetables with it. They don't use any seasoning, and yet it tastes amazing. Uh, so it was quite impressive to have the pork liver I, I just lived on for my entire, basically the entire summer. Yeah. And they really, um, you know, my first restaurant, and I, I have this in a, a little uh, video on YouTube, but the first restaurant I went to, uh, an old grandma, 93-year-old lady, was serving a pork head stew, and she was quite proud of it, you know, and then her younger generations were all preparing the rest of the animals, some were making some uh, cheese for the restaurant, and this was really quite normal. Uh, they're also very regional, as is most of Greece. So if you're on the beach, you're going to get some fish, but you're also going to have the meat items. Uh, there's not as much beef there, unlike some regions like uh, Africa is very beef heavy. That's like their staple. Whereas here, there's not the land for it. It's rocky. It's not grassy for grazing. So you're going to see more of the goat, the sheep, the pork, and the fish. Um, but it, it's really the staple. You would never have a meal without those kinds of things there. To the point that each of the, the families just per capita have about three goats per person. So, I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite heavy. I was surprised. I'd say one thing I was, I think, the most surprised by was the, the lack of carbohydrates there. Because the Greeks traditionally eat all the things. They eat a ton of fat, a ton of dairy, a ton of lamb, a ton of ghee, uh, all these kinds of things. And they have a little bit of beans, usually as a side dish in family gatherings. But it's not... A thing that you usually get at restaurants. So it's not what they say. It's like beans aren't very common. But in Ikaria, I really didn't see the beans at all, despite being there in the summer. And I, I should classify for all you listeners out there that uh, Ikaria and, and all of Greece, it's very seasonally. So they're going to have the highest amount of vegetation during the summer months and the least amount during the winter and the spring to where when I've led medical retreats here in the spring, I couldn't get any vegetables when I wanted to. So, <laughs> so it's really very regional. Usually most of your food is coming from within a mile or so of your house or from where you're eating from the restaurant, that kind of thing. And Ikaria was no different than that. But getting back to what surprised me in most of Greece, especially mainland Greece, that you do see a lot of bakeries. And although they don't eat sweets the way we do in the States, they're, they're, uh, version of a dessert would be something we would have for breakfast. It would be yogurt with honey uh, or some fresh fruit in the summer. So that's typically their dessert. But they have these bakeries and things. Um, 
And when I went to Korea on the entire island, I, I only found two bakeries. They were tiny and you just didn't see people going in and out. And when I interviewed people, I have tons of interviews. I just highlighted one, but I have tons of footage of all of these interviews. And they all reinstated uh, even more so than I had experienced. They're, they're not much of a carb-based culture there. Uh, they do eat their vegetables and that kind of thing. So they have like their pumpkins and squash, which of course came from the Americas. They're eating more potatoes now, but that wasn't a traditional food for them, but much lower carb than the rest of Greece, I would say. So interesting. And yet this is one of the blue zones. This is Dan Butner. So the next time you guys hear this, you can refer to this part of the video and the previous <laughs> podcast with Tommy Wood. I'll just screen share a couple of studies that highlight this. Um, these will be linked in the show notes, which are all at heartandsoil.co. This first article is titled The Sociodemographic and Lifestyle Statistics of the Oldest People Greater Than 80 Years Living in Icaria, or Icaria, the Icaria <laughs> Study. And you'll see if you, if you read this study that there is a lot of meat consumed there, just as Mary is suggesting. And then one more here, um, the... Um, Determinants of all-cause mortality and incidence of cardiovascular disease in older adults. Um, this is probably looking at the exact same study, the Icaria study of blue zones. This one is looking at all-cause mortality, incidence of cardiovascular disease. And both of the studies are going to point to the fact that people there do, do live longer than the average. They have a good life expectancy, but it's certainly not because they're avoiding meat, because they have lots of meat in their diet. In fact, we might be able to say that all of these organs and meats contribute to their longevity in addition to probably their lifestyle and the way they live. Before I move on to talking about Africa, did you notice, what did you notice about the communities? I've always had the suspicion that in these blue zones, a lot of the longevity effect is about the tribe, is about yeah. a tight knit community and the meaning in the work and the simplicity of life as we were talking about. Did you see that there? Completely. Yeah. So most of the things that have been attributed to the lifestyle in the blue zones don't apply for this island. They, uh, they smoke a lot, which the other blue zones don't, they also drink <laughs> and they don't really exercise. <laughs> so they don't have those three things going for them, but, uh, they do, they do tend to their own property. So they, they do their own like farming and that kind of thing, but they don't go for the island. Isn't, uh, a good place to go for walks and that kind of thing, you get killed. So, so they're really? not, yeah, they don't move a lot. Yeah, they're, they're very relaxed, actually. They basically relax all the time. But I think it is the tribe. They all have a purpose and they have a purpose in their community. And it's a very non, uh, very non commercialized island. So there's no tourism there except for Greek tourism for the Greeks coming to visit their family. And there's no like shops. It's, I can't, I don't think I could express in words how unmaterialistic this island is. And so what you have is very purposeful and there's not much striving for anything. Everyone has their plot of land, their house, it gets passed on through the families forever. Um, and that's something throughout Greece, FYI, property doesn't go to the government. If it gets abandoned, it stays in the house. It's a that's a whole other subject. It's very interesting, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, they all had a sense of purpose. And I, I actually think if, uh, 
if you looked at other parts of Greece, you would find the same. I've been going to cemeteries throughout Greece, especially in like the Arakova Mountains and these kind of regions and uh, over by Delphi. If you go there, there's really old people dying. <laughs> They're like 104, 107. You're kind of seeing the same thing. And it's the same kind of lifestyle a very relaxed, very much a purpose. You know, you work kind of until you die, but you work with your family. So it's not like work, work. Uh, it's a bit different. And um and you never feel uh, left behind, you know, like we do in the States. There's no retirement homes and that kind of thing. I love it. And I think that's a real part of the longevity, just spending time with people we care about doing things that are meaningful. And look, they smoke and drink and don't even exercise. So maybe those are all a little bit overrated. No, I think I think so, actually. And they do, I should say, I in all my time in Greece, I've actually never seen anyone drunk. So when they drink, okay. they don't drink to get drunk, but, but they do have a drink uh, over long periods of time in the evening. So the old men will go to the cafes and drink these very dry wines or these very hard alcohols like ouzo, which are really pretty medicinal, to be honest. There's some medicinal herbs in there. Uh, and yeah, sit and flirt with the ladies and smoke their cigarettes. <laughs> Why would you get killed if you walked around in Icaria? Oh, great question. Uh, because it's a bit like an Italian road. Uh, the, <laughs> the the road, the island is very mountainous. And so the roads are very jagged. Oh, they're and windy. People drive very quickly okay. on them. And there's no, there's no safety net in Greece anywhere you go. I mean, the whole place is a death trap. So um, like the elevators are dangerous. There's no doors. And on the highways, there's no rails. So if you make, if you look at your phone for a second, you're going to drive off that cliff or kill some old lady walking to get her... <laughs> you know, get her uh, groceries for the day. So, um, so you really can't walk on those roads. There's not even any space. There's barely space for two cars as, as is the case in so many European places, you have to kind of back up if another car comes in. So, uh, so yeah, there's just nowhere to walk. And, uh, and then the sea is pretty rough there. Most of the Mediterranean is very flat, but on this Island, there's actually a, a break you can surf. So we got to go surfing and that was really fun. Uh, but because of that, there's not as much swimming and that kind of thing, like you see throughout the rest of Greece. Maybe that's where I'll end up. Maybe you guys will hear me from Korea next time in the it's podcast. It's a great spot. You've got to go. I, as soon as this lockdown ends, I'll be headed back because I want to go in the winter to show the difference between the diets and the seasons. I want to go surfing there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to Africa. So you, I, I love this idea that you visited so many of these tribes and Bring us up to speed in your story. So you got better from the illness. You did schooling. You have this, this practice working with people. And we'll talk about that at the end, the type of people you've worked with and what you've seen. But, and then you started on this amazing journey of which I'm frankly quite jealous where you were traveling around the world, looking at the way that people ate for real, probably yeah. channeling Weston A. Price in many ways. And a oh, lot of those so. were in mm -hmm. Africa. So tell us about that. Walk us through where you've been in Africa, what tribes you've seen, and what's been remarkable, if that's not too broad a question. No, no, it's a great question. I think, you know, some of the things I want to see are on my bucket list. And we should talk about those tribes because they're really interesting. But uh, but what I love is, yeah, very much wanted to follow in his footsteps after reading his book and all of that. Um, I was so fascinated by how different the diets were in places like Japan and in Europe than as they're sold in America as the Mediterranean diet, as the Japanese diet, that I wanted to go further. And so I I got a chance to go throughout Africa and then I, I planned this whole trip and I've been to Africa several times now. 
headed back, of course. And, uh, and one of the things I think I was most fascinated by is that even in, say, the, the towns, the cities, like the fancy cities that look like a European city, people are eating crickets. And, and, <laughs> and I mean, the fancy people are eating uh, ants and they can't wait until termite season and this kind <laughs> of thing, <laughs> which you would just never expect. And so it's really uh, pervasive. The traditional foods have stayed quite pervasive. So in, in Zimbabwe, it's very normal to eat like the, the worms and the insects and these kind of things. And one of the things that I always love to see is, I don't know if you get as excited about this, but I, I don't work with a lot of supplements in my practice. I, I do mostly foods. There are some exceptions, but some things like teas and things like that, I'll use like a mucuna tea, which is great for boosting dopamine uh, with people with Parkinson's or just low dopamine. And I've used that, gosh, I don't know, for 10 years or something with people, but I actually got to go and see the tree and it grows everywhere in Zimbabwe, you know, so getting to see where it comes from and then see how it's used in the culture. Whereas there, it's just part of your dish. Uh, people eat it all the time. It's a normal side dish, or you make a tea, they mix it with chocolate. These kind of things I think is, is the most interesting. And and also, you learn about really amazing remedies, like uh, even though, of course, there's Western medicine there and hospitals and these kind of things, the people really don't rely on it. So, for instance, I mean, they're very self-sustaining. So when someone gets skin cancer there, it doesn't matter what class or what background they're from, they use a, a cream or oil made out of the sausage tree for it. It's called the Kigelia tree and it turns the, the spot black and then it falls off. And it, I got to see it happen and it's really amazing. And these things just aren't known in the rest of the place, but they're common knowledge there. So I love getting to see that. And then also you get to, um, really meet people that just have a, a depth of wisdom that it is just very rare. So for instance, I was on an elephant walk and this, this one just blew me away. I love, I love studying uh, medicinal plants because even the carnivore tribes would use some of the medicine. And I like to know what's surrounding me. I don't know about you, but I like to know what's around. I want to know what's it for and all the those kinds of things, what not to touch. And, uh, and my guide was so knowledgeable in the herbs and he was picking all of these different things up and pointing them out and showing me how they're used. And the, he was Shona, he was part of the Shona tribe, which is the, the major tribe. It's about 85% of Zimbabwe is Shona. The rest is Nabeli for the most part and a little bit of Zulu. Uh, but the, the Shonas are quite regal and their knowledge is extensive. And he picked up this one and he rubbed it together and it made, uh, it made soap. Basically, it had so many sapoins in it that it suds up and he rubbed it all over his legs and told me to do the same. And he told me that this is how they protect themselves from snake bites. So uh, one thing you're going to see is that in the tribes, there can be tons of mosquitoes all around or uh, or mango flies, which nobody wants <laughs> uh, or any of these kind of things. But they don't bother the tribesmen. They don't actually affect them at all. I think, I really think, and we'll have to see, especially in Tanzania, if this is the case, and if this is the case throughout the continent, I really think it's from their diet uh, and their, their overall health that they're not attracting these, these uh, bugs and these kind of things. Whereas the tourists come in and just get attacked. I mean, you just get eaten, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but they have these, these uh, tricks as well. Like this, this plant that you can rub on your legs, they use it for repelling snakes. The snakes really are repulsed by it. And there's a lot of snakes uh, that we're going to see. Um, but, uh, but for tourists, that works for bugs and repelling the mango flies and these kind of things as well. 
And that's in Zimbabwe. So in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe, you were with the Shona and they had that one. What about, um, have you been to, you've been to Tanzania with the Hadzabe, right? No, I actually haven't. So oh. this is going to be my first trip with them. So I've been through a lot of Northern Africa, um, but I haven't been to that region. I had my trip planned, of course, so that was canceled. So I'm excited because I've done extensive research on a lot of the tribes we're going to go see. And I have a lot of friends there who have uh, graciously given me lots of information. But yeah, we're going to go and we're not going to we're not going to be there in honey season. I did look that up. Honey season is more around July and then October. So we'll miss that. Uh, but <laughs> but we'll still get to go for the hunting and all of those kinds of things. So which other tribes did you have a chance to connect with when you were in Africa? Yeah, so definitely the Zulu as well. And the Nibeli, uh, the San. I think the sand are, are really incredible. The sand uh, span throughout a lot of uh, Southern Africa. So South Africa, Botswana, these kind of regions. And there's several different subsets within the sand uh, that you can go and see. I'm, I'm interested though. Uh, so I want to go back to Botswana and do some of the, the studies with the sand there because they're, they're really living the, the old school way, which is really great to see. Um, but where I really want to, I want to go to the Congo and because you've got the border between, there's this strict border. And I, I don't know how extensively you've traveled, but the more I travel, the more I see that things are very much, uh, you see similar patterns around the world, but there's this exception around the Congo. There's these two tribes, the Pygmy and the Dinkas, and they're bipolar. They're just complete opposites, and yet they live right next to each other. One is the shortest, uh, well, it's the shortest people in the world. The other is the tallest people in the world. And uh, everything is different on, on those countrysides. So I'm dying to go there. Uh, that will be definitely the next, I would say, bucket list item on, on this next trip. What do you think is different between the Pygmy and the Dinka? Well, okay, so no one knows what affects their height. No one has been able to pin it down. And I can't say I have a theory on it either, but I'm going to go with the with the intention of figuring that out. That's for sure. They're both hunter-gatherers. Uh, the, the pygmy usually will hunt each day, so they set up traps, and they're very efficient. So they'll, they'll catch, say... Um, a gazelle or a zebra or something else, and usually a gazelle though, and they'll they'll have it cooked and ready in 20 minutes. That that's how efficient they are. And they'll usually eat in the evening. So they really won't, you know, they'll just kind of mess around all day. They're very, very relaxed and they have a very fun life. They they live in the forest and these small tribes and they dance around. Uh, they do a lot of dancing, they they smoke a bit, they they have a very relaxed lifestyle. And and then they go to their traps, they get their animal, and then they cook it over the fire and they all eat and then they go to bed. So it's, it's a very nice life that from everything I've seen, they're very satisfied, happy people. And they're, they're in other regions as well. Like you can go to parts of Uganda. A lot of times the, uh, the guerrilla tours that you can go on will be led by some of the, the pygmy tribesmen that are, have become more modern, uh, and that kind of thing. And they're in a few different countries, but the Congo is where they're still very true to their traditional roots. So, uh, yeah, I'm dying to go there. The pygmy were, or not the pygmy, the Dinka were more pastoral. So they would have cows and do more dairy and, and meat, and then also whatever else was around. Uh, so tubers, those kind of things. So they had different diets and different patterns of eating, you know, one does more intermittent fasting, one does less, uh, but no one knows why they're so wildly different in both culture and height. Maybe it's just a genetic, genetic yeah, branch point. It might Who be. Knows? Yeah. yeah. But you they're know, both equally healthy. And that's something I just, I love. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I wonder if the pygmy have some sort of, yeah, genetic founder effect where they just have shorter genetics and they are all interbreeding now. Um, yes. But it's good that they're all healthy. Now, you mentioned that you were with some tribes that were mostly carnivore or eating a lot of meat. Which tribes were those? Well, those, so traditionally that's the Shona, uh-huh. I would say. Yeah, and several of the ones we're going to go see are as well. So there's a, a great, uh, there's a carnivore tribe in Ethiopia, mm-hmm. and then there's the a lot of them in the Kilimanjaro Basin that we're going to go to as well. But it, meat, you know, a lot of times I see, I even saw this talk in Washington, D.C. a few years ago uh, by a woman who had gone back to Ethiopia and then come back to the States and was presenting this nutritional guideline that was basically vegan based on... <laughs> her experience in Ethiopia. And it it literally doesn't make any sense. I don't, I don't know what her experience was, but um, in Ethiopia, the Burana tribe is, is full carnivore. No one talks about them or the Samburu, which are getting to be more known, which is in Kenya. Love to take you there if the borders were open. Uh, Yeah, we would definitely be going, but those are really good. Uh, And, and they're really throughout, you know, when I, when I first was teaching the carnivore diet back in the day, and I would kind of sell it to a patient, I'd tell them about the historical basis. And at the time I was aware of maybe eight different, I think, uh, regions in the world that were carnivore. There were the couple in Russia and down in South, uh, South America, and then mostly Africa and these kind of things. Um, but the more and more I travel, the more I realize there's far more carnivore communities, uh, that I think we're just not maybe aware of, or we haven't paid attention to. And you definitely see that throughout Ethiopia. Now you do see a varied diet in Ethiopia. So each of the tribes eats quite differently from each other, but you see that all over and we're, we're going to see that as well. So in the uh, Tanzania, the Mount Kilimanjaro basin, you've got everything from the Chaga, which are, they eat uh, meat and then they banana farm. So they're a very different tribe for that reason. They have the bananas (laughs) and they have cassava. So it's almost like a South American diet, right? Because you've got the cassava, the plantain, uh, and then the meat, and they do lots of stews and those kind of things. And then you've got, you know, the Datoga, which are very similar to the Maasai. And uh, then you've got the Hudsa, which change on the season, but hunt and gather. So you've got, you've got really a wide range of diets uh, that will be seeing and, and really that you see through out and you see um uh you see hardcore carnivore like just meat based and then you also see a lot of dairy in Africa. And presumably all of these tribes are eating nose to tail. I mean I've always assumed yeah. that they're never wasting anything in the animal and they're always eating the organs, right? I've and never spare. seen anything wasted. And I exactly. mean like the bones are sucked and chewed on. Yeah. Like nothing is wasted. And and that's normal. So that was really interesting to see. Even in, in the upper crust of Zimbabwe, like the fanciest of the fancy people, were gnawing on bones and, and eating the bones. So so it's it's really um uh, I think culturally a deep thing to do. You really eat nose to tail. And and I think that's part of what makes people so resilient there, uh, in all the classes and all the cultures, is that they do eat nose to tail. They do uh, the bones and the marrow and the organ meat and the skin and all of that. And, and they tend to eat things very fresh as well. When did you eat a raw adrenal gland, Mary? <laughs> so my 
first time was a great question. My first time was in Greece and I was so excited. So it was an Easter several years ago. And on Easter here, the tradition is to uh, put a, a lamb on a spit. So you, you get the whole family together and you put a lamb on a spit and the lamb is roasting all day and or the goat. And while that's going on, everybody is making all the other you know side dishes and you're kind of hanging out together. Well, it was my first time to get access to raw adrenal gland. And I was so excited because, you know, I've read all these things about it. And I, so POTS has now been found, uh, which is the form of dysautonomia that I had to be an autoimmune condition of the adrenal receptors, or at least that's what they think. And, uh, and, you know, there's so many schools of thought that recommend if you have an illness in a certain area, you should be eating that organ meat and that kind of thing. And so I've always wanted to get my hands on some organ meats. And despite all my efforts and all my wonderful connections back in the States, I was never able to. So I'm in Greece and we've got this whole animal and I'm like, Hey, er, is everything in there? And you're like, yeah. And, <laughs> and so, yeah. And I looked in and there was the sweetbreads and there were the kidneys. And so I could very easily see where the adrenal gland was. And I grabbed it out of my excitement and just popped it in my mouth and ate it. And I was so excited and I was on cloud nine. And then I looked down and there's the liver infested with parasites, just totally invested in parasites. I could have died inside. Uh, but <sighs> yeah, but, uh, but there you go. I got the, the adrenal. And so now, now it's quite easy to get here. You can really get everything here from spleen to, uh, adrenal gland to anything else that you want, which is quite nice. Organ meat is, is quite a, a heavily eaten thing here in Greece, but yeah, that was my first, my first experience. And how could you tell? Because people will often ask me this. I eat a lot of raw liver. I yeah, always I give people that you do too. Mm -hmm. I always give people the caveat. There's always a chance of, of, you know, foodborne illness. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, if you can see the liver, I, you know, you can see that it's clean and it's kind of smooth, but what did, how could you tell that liver was infested with parasites? You, you could see them. These were not the microscopic kind. So, so they were quite obvious. And uh, Sava, the man who was putting the, the animal up on the spit, split, knew exactly what kind of parasite they were. They were actually pretty common mm -hmm. for this, uh, this animal in this region. So, uh, so yeah, this one you could see, but a lot of parasites are microscopic. I personally don't worry about it in general. I find that overall, um, when you're eating so well, your immune system or mine works very well, and I'm not too concerned about it. Uh, and two, I find, you know, liver usually looks pretty beautiful in general. So that was, yeah, that was my first time seeing that. But uh, <laughs> next time I will definitely, or each time I will definitely check the rest of the animal before I, <laughs> I jump in with excitement. And I, though I'm not a taxidermist, um, mm -hmm. I butchered a lot of animals mm -hmm. and my just gentle advice to people would be look at the liver. If it's smooth, if it's not scarred, this is what the USDA inspectors are going to do. They're just going to look at the organs visually and inspect them. And if you see scars or, you know, marks or spots, that's probably an indication. It's not a healthy animal's liver. You don't want to eat that, but if it's smooth, you might be in better position. Now, um, if it's spotted and full of parasites, you probably don't want to eat it regardless. If it looks smooth and good and healthy, you can cook it if you'd like, or you can get a desiccated organ like we make at hardened soil, or you can blanch it. Um, but now when you've seen the Shona eat animals, do they eat the organs raw? Do they cook them all together? I know a lot of tribes will eat raw liver as like a sacrament or just as like a sacred food. Yeah. Usually the organ meat, honestly, most places I go is cooked is either raw or seared 
and mm-hmm. cook lightly. The Greeks are a bit different. They tend to cook everything pretty heavily, but no, in the Shona, definitely no. It's uh, it's pretty raw, usually. It's pretty raw, dance. interesting, yeah. So, mm-hmm. our, I mean, they're they're doing it. And like yeah. we've talked about before, they they probably grew up with this in a certain way and may have a different gut flora and, and maybe a little more prepared for it. But I think that humans are adapted to eat that kind of food. I'm very curious about the Shona specifically. Can you describe their diet a little more? Yeah, it's a really interesting diet. So it's always been based around cattle and red meats, but you you get all the meats there. So you eat things like zebra, antelope, all the things we see at the zoo <laughs> as well. All right. those kinds of things. Yeah, minus elephants. No elephants are eaten. Uh, and there's a really interesting, so there's a, a great tradition in sub-Saharan Africa. The names are very different. So um, they might be like the names of people, like your name might be trouble or it might be champion, or it's, it's usually like, um, an attribute that the parents give you. It's, it's very interesting. And with that, you also get kind of a spirit animal and this is even into modern day. So, uh, some people will have the lion as their animal. And so they will never harm a lion. And if that's their animal, some people will have an elephant or a zebra, these kind of things. And so even if zebra is wildly eaten, you wouldn't have it if that was your animal. But it's it's based around meat. And then you have traditionally, it would have been sorghum. So sorghum and millet were the two ancient grains that were eaten in that region, not by everyone, but they were eaten by the plains people. So not the ones up in the mountains. They were always fermented and they were mainly used to uh, complement the meat and that kind of thing. Kale is heavily uh, heavily eaten there and has been for a long period of time. The dark greens or like nettles, shard, these kind of things are commonly eaten. But moringa is the most common plant. Uh, If you go there, everybody's growing moringa and eating moringa. Now it's considered a superfood, which I mean, we know most superfoods are the opposite. But but for them, that's been a a longstanding plant along with resurrection, uh, resurrection bush as well. Insects make up a large part of their diet as do some root vegetables like the taro plant or some some regions might call it the elephant uh, root. It's called different things in different cultures, but it, to us, it's usually the taro. Um, uh, but yeah, honestly, a lot of insects and then baobab. Baobab is a, a big thing eaten there <laughs> quite often. And avocado. I, you know, America, I find, has the best avocados throughout the world, or at least I, I thought, because usually when I travel, they're not so great. And I'm, I'm not a big avocado eater like some people are. But um, but uh, Africa had really good avocados. The trees just grow these massive things. Mm. It's fascinating. So they'll eat that. But again, that's seasonal. Their main staple would be the meat and the insects. And then um, they've moved now towards, so the, the older generations still do that. The younger generations have adopted corn and maize instead of the sorghum and millet. And uh, and it's really problematic because they don't put it through the five-stage process that corn really has to go through. Um, and they've also started to adopt, at least in the cities, the, the vegetable oils. So what you see in the cities, you're starting to see some of the health issues because of those additions. Mm. Now that said, their diet is still very regional and uh, and local outside of those two things. So uh, so they're not like eating pop tarts and these kind of things, right? I, I want to emphasize that because it's sometimes hard for many of us in in America or Canada or Europe to like imagine how different it is the food availability, but. Um, Uh, But yeah, it kind of looks a bit like that. They'll have like their sauteed kale. They eat a lot of puri puri chicken from the Portuguese influence now. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they they love spicy food. But but meat is really the staple. Um, 
uh, outside of the cities, everyone is very self-sufficient. So you go to any of the villages and it could just be 20 minutes outside of the village, outside of the city rather. And you've got these beautiful round huts that they cook in and there's a fire in the middle and it goes up and they've got their chickens there and they'll slaughter the chicken at some point. They'll use them for eggs and then for meat and make a stew out of that. And then they'll have uh, a few vegetables that they grow like the, the kale and these kind of things. And that's, that's kind of their diet. Um, uh, again, really heavy on the insects and those medicinal herbs like the, the baobab. Interesting. Now I'm surprised they eat kale where does that, why would they do that? Is this just, is, that, is it the people yeah, who are I, living in the city and, or the people yeah. who are more living traditionally in the bush? All, all of them really. Where they uh, yeah, all of the them bush? do. I think because it grows year round. So it's never their main it grows dish. Wild I in should Africa? emphasize that. Hmm? It grows wild in Africa. Yeah, it grows everywhere. Huh. Yeah. And well, in that part of Africa in sub-Saharan Africa, it's very temperate. So mm -hmm. It grows most of the year mm -hmm. and it's a high yield plant and the insects really don't go after it. So it's just like an easy thing to grow. So they don't eat it raw. They're not making smoothies, but they'll add it to soups or have it as, as a saute, that kind of thing. Interesting. Now I was reading a book. My friend, Anthony Gusson gave me a book on the Kung, the Kung. Uh, oh, yeah. Song. yeah. Mm -hmm. And in the book, they were talking about their diet. And when, when the author of that book, it's a very thick book, um, was, uh, I don't have it here, um, was asking someone what an ideal diet is. He said meat and mongongo because there's this nut down there they really like. Uh, yes, for, it's in Zimbabwe too. Yeah, for protein and then honey and oranges for sweetness. And I thought that was so interesting that they, and similarly in the sun, they were prized, they prized meat. They were always talking about it. Kind of like the conversation I'd had with Eric Ed Meads about the Hadza. The men were always talking about hunting and it's yes. the fixation. They're just thinking, when can we get more meat? When can we hunt more animals? And then in the chapter on hunting, they talk about the fact their diet usually ranges from 20 to 40% animal foods based on the amount of hunting they can do and how many animals they're successful at, but it can go up to 90% animal foods yeah. when hunts are successful. Did you see variations like that? I, I don't know if you spent enough time with them. My sense is that they're eating animals in proportion to which they're available, but did you see that, that they, that they were widely available. There was no yeah. shortage. I, I found a very high meat diet. So I, yeah. I mean, I would put it up at least 60%, uh -huh. at least animal products and probably higher. Um, it really is, I, I don't know how to say it. It's really a meat-based culture. It, yeah. You wouldn't see a vegetarian there or a vegan. It's just not a thing. Uh, steak is at almost like you eat steak every day honestly. Um, that's just the norm. And so when you go to someone's house, they give you biltong, which is becoming a thing in the States. I'm so glad, but mm -hmm. it's like, it's like a, a upgraded jerky. It tastes so good. You basically take like a filet and you dry it out. And that's every single house is going to serve you that. And everybody's making their own in their houses. Um, so a meat is really kind of where, um, where all the meals are based and the other things are just kind of extra, but I can't imagine anyone there giving that up or not having that as their priority. In all of your travels through Africa, seeing these tribes, was there anything surprising that you noticed about their diets? Yeah, I was surprised. Uh, I was surprised by how many insects they yeah. ate. 
I would say that was probably the most surprising. I thought it would be more of a backup food and it's a deli, like people love it. It's really delightful. So I think that, and also the lack of sweets. I just didn't see a lot of sweets eaten outside of the natural ones uh, that you mentioned. So not a lot of the, the desserts, uh, snacking, grazing, that kind of thing. There were like proper meals, big, hearty. I didn't see a lot of hunger or anything like that. Interesting. Yeah. So- You've been you've been traveling now for six years, right? About yeah. What's the takeaway so far? I mean, I'm excited for our group to go to Africa and visit with the the Hadza and some of these other tribes. But what's been the takeaway so far? What have you learned in summary from all of that adventuring? I think that you know what I've seen is that. Uh, humans can be healthy on a number of different diets when the microbiome hasn't been tampered with and when the health is already intact. Once it becomes compromised, uh, I see a lot of illness anytime modern foods are brought in. So the cultures that are the most, that are the most sticklers with tradition, and that's even the case in parts of Europe that are really into traditional foods as opposed to the modern, tend to really retain their health uh, very strongly and have a lot of robustness. And I think, you know, my theory, my hypothesis upon starting this journey was that, uh, humans can be very robust and you can really live without illness outside of injuries and that kind of thing. And I've definitely seen that. I have definitely seen that. So I think this, this illness epidemic that we're experiencing in the States and some other countries, is very much a choice, uh, and, uh, something that we can really get ourselves out of with a bit of intention. I couldn't agree with you more. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the people you've worked with, some of the things you've seen get better in your own practice. But the last question I had about your travels was how many people, I guess people don't keep track of their age in many of these hunter-gatherer tribes, but how many elderly people did you see? There's this insidious notion that hunter-gatherers don't live a long time. And many of us know that this is is skewed by higher rates of infant mortality and things like this. but I'm just curious, you know, did you see people older than 55 years old and, and how oh, many yeah. elderly people did you see and, and how vital did the elders of these hopefully indigenous living tribe, you know, like these, these traditionally living tribes look to you firsthand? Yeah, so they're in perfect health. And they're much older than our elderly, for one. They also keep their teeth and their mind and their wits and their strength. Uh, so that part of, I think, why they're so respected in these cultures is because they, they're they able to re- retain their wisdom. They don't lose their minds as they age and they don't lose their health as they age either. Um, yeah, we really have a false notion of this short lifespan due to that infant mortality thing. And that, for some reason, was taken as uh, as gospel in throughout our culture. But it's really not. Uh, you see that even in places like Greece. I mean, the people, the elderly here are just so robust. You see it throughout uh, many regions that haven't adopted a modern diet, but you really see it in the tribes. I mean, there's even, I haven't been to that tribe where the the men run the marathon every year. Do you know about that? Uh, where the 70-year-olds are this like the best? South, is this in Mexico or where, where are you thinking? In Africa? There's one in Africa that does oh. this, and there's one in South America that does this as well. Yeah. But the 70-year-old men are the ones that are known to run it the fastest. That's amazing. And, uh, yeah, and you see that. I, I really think health tends to improve if you're living and eating in a way that's in line with nature as opposed to disintegrate. So, Do you know yeah, the name of that tribe? No, um, young young deaths. What's the name of that tribe? Do you know in Africa? I don't, but I'll, I'll find it. I'll send yeah. it to you. I know there's one, there's a famous tribe in it's Mexico called the Tara Umara. 
that were, you know, famed for their running and long runners. But um, yeah, I wonder, that'd be interesting to know about the tribe in Africa that does it. So, so in your practice, you've seen people with a variety of issues and I'm curious what kind of things you've seen get better with attention to diet and what you found to be helpful. I imagine every individual is going to have a little bit different intervention, but what kind of people, what kind of conditions have you worked with and seen improve and what have you found to be helpful intervention wise? So I've been really lucky because having had such a weird illness and also a widespread illness, I've attracted other people with weird illnesses. So I've gotten to work with really unique and rare things uh, and also kind of the run of the mill things like the MS. But I've just seen full turnarounds with all these conditions that we, you know, we believe aren't curable and that kind of thing. And some of them have been really remarkable and unexpected. I think one of my favorite stories was of a a man with MS that came to my office. He was in a political position. And so he actually booked the appointment under his wife's name. Mm -hmm. And he was very embarrassed uh, about his MS diagnosis because Mm -hmm. with the position he had, he couldn't have had that and, uh, and kept his, his position. And so they came in and I I told them what I would do for MS. And I gave them kind of like this packet. I always type up this big thing for people. And then I never saw them again. And he was very quiet and kind of solemn and grumpy. And so I thought, I thought he was like, who is this chick? I'm out of here kind of thing, right? Well, a year later, I heard from them. They came back in and they looked totally different. He had lost about 40 pounds. So he looked like a completely different person, had fully reversed his MS. They did it all on their own, just with that packet. You know, usually I'm seeing someone at least once a month kind of thing. But no, they just took it and ran with it. They both totally turned their health around, turned out she had had like uh, some, his wife had had some mental health issues that had reversed. And, um, and that was probably one of my favorite reversals because it was so unexpected, but everything from schizophrenia to MS to uh, really autoimmune conditions across the board. I'm yet to see an autoimmune one, not turn around. I think uh, I was just, I met with someone last night. I was on a mom's life podcast and one of the, one of the ladies on it had lost her thyroid due to Hashimoto's. She had the surgery and it's, it's so disappointing because there's so many things you can do potentially to prevent that surgery from happening. Uh, but yeah, from Hashimoto's to Graves, all that kind of stuff, kidney disease, and some of the things very quickly, like diabetes is often very, very fast, uh, as opposed to some of the, the nervous system conditions that take longer. And broadly, are you approaching most of these with something like a GAPS diet or an animal-based diet or what's yes, been, never- what's, what's been effective? Yeah, I never use uh, the vegetarian or a vegan diet, and I don't think that would work. <laughs> yeah, Me neither. so I don't use those. <laughs> but I, I use about 40 different varieties within that sphere. So um, my really bad cases, I'll do GAPS carnivore. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my MCAD patients, uh, histamine, severe histamine ones really respond well to carnivore. And I know uh, Dr. Afrin's office is now using that as well. He's one of the, the specialists in diagnosing that. Uh, that works really well. And then I do gaps with carbohydrates. So the, the gaps approved carbohydrates for things like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. I haven't found that those folks have to go as low carb usually, although it's kind of individual with that. I use a lot of ketosis with any of these, whether there's zero starch or some starch. And then the healthier someone is, sometimes we'll have small amounts of the traditional starches like the cassava or the tapioca uh, or the sweet potato, but that's only in those cases that are like borderline 
brain, like psoriasis, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that e- even is very individual because psoriasis can be horrific. Uh, so yeah, I'll do varieties in there, but the meat I found to be essential or animal-based products. I can do it with fish. I can do it with dairy. Uh, if someone tolerates dairy and I'm very picky about what kind of dairy they're allowed to have, but overall everything has to be done at home. You know, you can't be <laughs> eating at restaurants or getting whole foods takeout uh, for this kind of stuff to work. Whole Foods is sneaking vegetable oil into stuff. They're sneaking seed oils in there, you guys. They're they really are. <laughs> yes. Not a good thing. Not a good thing. Maybe I'll get. I know John Mackey sold it to Amazon now, but hopefully I'll get John Mackey on the podcast at some point and have a good. little debate with him about the future of Whole Foods or the intention yeah. there. Their little plant strong crusade needs to go away. I want to share. I know. This. <laughs> I know it's so crazy. <laughs> it's such a bummer. Um, I want to share this chart that you sent me because it's pretty cool. Um, and this is kind of a a little bit of a non sequitur perhaps, but, um, we were talking offline about vitamin K in foods. And so often, uh, people will email me through heart and soil and ask, what is the vitamin K content of this or that? And, you know, even when I was on the doctor's TV show, one of the most, you know, surprising things was that they said animal foods don't have vitamin C, which is false. They do. And they don't have vitamin K. And I thought, well, that's just. Wait, how did they say that? Because because all the nutritional databases only have vitamin K1, which is phyloquinone. And so I just wanted to show something that you sent me, which is cool as a reference for people as a bonus in this podcast that um, Mary found this great image um, with a number of references here along the side. Is this taken from a paper, Mary? Yes. Yeah. And I can send you the whole thing. Yeah. We'll put it in the show notes, but you can see, I want to emphasize a few things here. This paper, this table breaks down K1 and then all of these menaquinones, MK4 to MK13, which are all the vitamin K2 analogs. And I want people to understand that it's important probably for humans to get all of these menaquinones. And if you look at beef liver, it has essentially everything. It doesn't find any MK5, but there's MK5 in muscle meat, but Beef liver contains MK4, MK6, MK7, all of the menaquinones from four to 13, except for five. And one of the things that's not on this uh, chart is our plant-based forms of vitamin K2, which are things like natto, which do not have this array and um, only have a few, only one of the menaquinones. I believe it's MK7. I always mix up MK7. That's right, it's seven. Yeah. So natto has MK7, but doesn't have these other menaquinones. And so people will always get up in arms and get a little bit uh, triggered when I say you can't get vitamin K2 from plant foods. And I say, what about natto? And my response is you can't get the full spectrum of vitamin K2 from plant foods, which is all of these different menaquinones. And you can see here that Kidney has a bunch of different menaquinones in it. Basically, liver is the superhero. I wish they'd put in something like maybe spleen and some of these other things here. This is just basically uh, meat and livers, but the organs from animals definitely have a full spectrum of menaquinones. And we're only beginning to learn what these different menaquinones do. And um, just getting your vitamin K from K1 in plants is probably not an ideal situation. And just getting your vitamin K from 
Nato is probably not a good thing either. So again, completely off topic, but relevant because we talked about it and I wanted to share it. Anything you want to no, add to I'm that? I'm so glad you brought it up. And yeah, what I'd love to add to that is that that's why I think it's so important to get your nutrition from food because we are constantly discovering new things. And so if you're eating something that wasn't a traditional food, like a kale shake, you are fully missing out on something that you may not even know about. Maybe we don't know about at collectively as a species yet, yet it's so essential for our bio, our biochemistry to work properly. This is exactly why I get so excited about organs and especially desiccated organs, just to get these into the hands of more people. A lot of times I'll get emails, can you give me the nutritional information? And I say, sure, but the only things on there are the things we know about. And it's hard to list all the peptides, ergothionine, hepatocyte growth factor and colostrum, proline-rich peptides, lactoferrin. I mean, the list would be 60 things long. There are so many molecules and the spectrum of metaquinones in a vitamin K2 is just an illustration, just the tip of the iceberg here. Like you said, we're still learning about molecules in organs that are beneficial for humans that we don't think of canonically as vitamins and minerals. They're not B vitamins, they're not minerals. So they're not gonna be on a traditional label, but they're not gonna be in the USDA database, but BPC-157, LL-37, or other cathelicidins in bone marrow. And these yes. are all on our website. We've talked about them. Ergothionine, spermidine, which is always kind of a snickering one. I'm always like, ha-ha, spermidine. <laughs> <laughs> but I talked about it in a recent newsletter too. I mean, spermidine is a polyamine that's found in liver and kidney and other organs that, and obviously in semen as well, that has benefits for dementia in clinical trials. And yet, there you go. Like really not found in that many plant foods. Ergothionine is in some plant foods, but these are, in my opinion, quote, magical compounds, really beneficial compounds that we've had forever. And we're just now beginning to understand nutrition. It's way more and vitamins and minerals. So thank you for saying that because it's a huge. Uh, no, I'm so point. glad you're bringing this up too because organ meats have really been the the magical item in so many of my patients, especially my fertility patients. Mm. Uh, when I'll get a couple that's been trying for five or ten years, and we put them on an ancestral diet with tons of organ meat. I mean, I go really heavy with that and bone marrow and these kind of things. And the fertility will often kick back in, right? A lot of times, I mean, there's many causes for infertility, but that is really an essential because most people today are lacking those essential vitamins that are found in these cuts uh, because we weren't typically raised on them. And we were raised on a lot of foods that deplete them. So even if our, our families were one of the ones that had liver once a week, we were often eating a lot of foods that would deplete the nutrients found there. So we don't have that kind of base. And I've seen really magical things with dementia. I work with a lot of dementia patients uh, over in California and their families are, you know, cooking for them and their health and all of that. But you really see someone come back to life when you stabilize their blood sugar, you give them these deep nutrient dense foods and those kind of things. They can, they can come back and have conversations again. It's incredible. I mean, your story is incredible. Those stories of clients and patients are, are moving and incredible. Just the other day, somebody sent me a testimonial. Uh, it was a practitioner who'd worked with a couple who had had infertility for four years. They did in vitro, didn't work. And she put them on an animal-based diet with uh, you know, our supplements from Heart and Soil. And within two months, they were pregnant naturally. And so it was like, awesome. that's just so cool. So it's awesome to hear that your experience is the same with fertility uh, in a lot of these situations. Yeah, the fertility has just been incredible. And it's amazing because these couples go through so much stress, you know, with each month, they think, oh, maybe this is a sign of pregnancy. And then the big letdown a week later, and over and over and over again for years, and often we'll spend 
a small fortune trying to get pregnant on all of these very expensive treatments when there's something you can do just by buying different groceries and uh, some of your supplements or eating the organ meats. And a lot of times it's just within the first three cycles. You know, the, um, usually I see it within either one to 12 uh, months, usually at the pregnancy to stick. So yeah, it's really remarkable what you can do with the right kind of nutrition. It's just, it's total paradigm shift. It's really awesome. So anything else we didn't cover that you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up? Oh gosh, I think the main thing is, uh, I hope you all go away feeling far more empowered. And <laughs> that if you are dealing with something, know that it is never hopeless. There's so much you can do in every single moment from changing your mindset to becoming the hero of your own story, getting present, doing all the lifestyle things, getting that ancestral nutrition in you and uh, giving it time to, to lay the groundwork and repair that tissue. I love it. Where can people find more of your stuff or reach out to you if get on your wait list, whatever. <laughs> sure. So my website is enableyourhealing.com. And there you can see a lot of my programs. I've got a lot of quick start guides and then programs that you can jump into as well. And then I just started a little YouTube channel where I'll, I'll be putting up all the footage from all my travels and my podcasts are on there as well. What's your YouTube channel? Is it just under your name, Mary Ruddick? Yeah, just or? Mary Ruddick. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Last question. I should have warned you about this. What is the most radical thing that you have done recently? I have a suspicion, but we'll see. What is the most radical thing you've done recently, Mary? Oh, probably buying a house today. There you go. That's what I thought. <laughs> I hope you'll put, I hope you'll do an MTV style cribs tour of it when you, when it's good. Will you do that for us? Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I bought it based on, I don't know about you, but I make so many choices now based on health and uh, living in Athens, having a base here is so healthy. It's sunny most of the year. It's warm most of the year. You can get really healthy food, uh, fresh food year round, nose to tail. And, uh, and there's a ton of nature in this city and you can go swimming every day in the Mediterranean. Uh, you can wake up at the sunrise and do your workouts and your journaling. So it's really like, it's a fantastic thing to do. And that would be a takeaway I would say for your audience as well is start to design your life uh, with intention and around health. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, Heart and Soil crew. All right, tribe. All right, my people. Thank you to my sponsors this week, heartandsoil.co. You guys know this is my company. It's my heart and soul. Play on words there. It's heart and soil. Because we care about regenerative agriculture. We care about putting soil uh, back into the forefront of human consciousness, putting carbon back into the soil. We care about regenerating ecosystems. Poop is beautiful. Poop in the dirt makes good soil. And that's how we all live. It's how it works. Animals are incredible. They will save the planet. Cows will save the planet. So we are happy to support that kind of agriculture at Heart and Soil. That sounded interesting. Happy, happy to support that type of agriculture at Heart and Soil. Heartandsoil.co. You get the desiccated organs, feed your brain, feed everything in your body, feed your heart, feed your liver, and uh, crush it with some organs, whether fresh or desiccated. If you need the fresh organs, check out whiteoakpastures.com, bellcampo.com. Use the code CarnivoreMD there for discounts. Check out blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Use CarnivoreMD there for discounts to get your blue black and glasses to be cool like me when you're hanging out with your friends and you're around blue light and check out helixsleep.com front slash carnivore md for the best mattress of your life number one 
Mattress, GQ, Forbes in 2020. Yeah. And it's amazing. I sleep on one. It's fantastic. Stoke they sponsored the podcast. So thanks everybody for listening. Leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to be my best friend, I will send you a signed copy of the book if you are the lucky winner. And that's how we move the needle, guys. That's how we move uh, the message forward. So uh, what's going on with me? Man, it's been a good couple of weeks hanging out in Montana and Utah. I've been working on the cookbook, putting the finishing touches on the cookbook, doing writing and some networking and some learning and also some decompressing, being in the wilderness uh, between uh, bouts of snowboarding, bouts. I'm a pretty mediocre snowboarder, but I love it and I'm getting better at it every day. I like being bad at things. I think it's a fascinating way to live our lives. And although it's frustrating, today was a frustrating day. But I started out in Whitefish, Montana at Whitefish Ski Resort. Then I went to Big Sky with a buddy and skied or snowboarded some amazing snow. We call it powder. That's how we say it, powder. And I hit some rocks, but it was worth it. I got some really good turns in there. Spent a couple days in Park City, Utah. Man, they were hurting for snow, but I rode some groomers. Got some sun. It was good to cruise around. And then I've been in uh, up at uh, Eden, Utah, skiing at a secret resort that will go undisclosed because it's so amazing for the last couple of days and it's been really good. But snow's been pretty, pretty brutal all over the West. I'm going to Africa next month. I'm stoked. A week from when this podcast comes out, I'm leaving for Africa. Podcasts will continue through that month. I've got some saved up and uh, all kinds of fun stuff coming. So stay tuned in the future for amazingness from me. I'll give you reports while I'm away from Africa, but uh, I can't wait to spend some time in Hudson. So love you all. Stay radical. Go to heartandsoil.co. Sign up for the newsletter if you don't get it. Uh, every Sunday we send it out. I talk about articles, what's going on in the podcast, and what I'm interested in. So love you all. Talk to you later. Stay radical.